begin the walk at the Peterloo Massacre Memorial, which is located on Windmill Street, in the square between the Manchester Conference Centre and the Midland Hotel. The postcode is M23DL. Hello, I'm Dr Eleanor Shemba Critchley and I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism at Manchester Metropolitan University. And I'm joined by my MME journalism colleague Peter Murray. Hello Pete. Hi Ellie. Where are we? Well, we're at the Peterloo Massacre Memorial. It sits outside the Manchester Conference Centre next to the trams as well, so you may hear them going by. It marks the day here in the city centre when tens of thousands of people gathered from miles around in August 1819 for what remains one of the biggest pro-democracy demonstrations ever held in the country. At least 14 and probably up to 18 people were killed when cavalry and militiamen charged into the crowd to disperse the protests on the orders of the local authorities. Hundreds more suffered what we'd now call life-changing injuries. Two journalists were there covering the demonstration and it's only thanks to them that we know what actually happened, that this was an unprovoked attack on a peaceful crowd by state authorities who were fearful of working people rising, as the poet Shelley put it, rising like lions after slumber to demand better wages and representation for all in Parliament. Now we'll come back to the detail of that in a moment, but first Ellie, why 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 are we here? Why? Well, we think of the Peterloo Massacre as the starting point for a tradition of radical journalism in the city and the northwest of England. And so it's an ideal starting point for what's to come over the next half hour or so, which is our guided audio tour of some locations around the city centre, which are milestones along that tradition. And it's a timeline which will take us from here right up to our own front door at Manchester Met on Oxford Road. And it won't just be the us two you'll hear from. We'll be speaking along the way to journalists and historians who've been cataloguing that 200-year story and who are part of the continuing story right now in 2021. So Pete, Lou, how did this become the starting point? So the 16th of August 1819 was a trigger for a number of things. It created one of the deepest ever splits in the Tory party. Funnily enough, it was a bit like Brexit over foreign trade. But it's also closely linked to the start of a wider pro-democracy movement known as Chartism, which flourished across Britain for the next 30 years into the 1840s. But crucially for our story, the sense of outrage which the massacre created among supporters for social change brought together a group of cotton merchants and mill owners to fund a new weekly newspaper which they said would cover the pro-democracy movement fairly and would also be independent of politicians and the government here or in London. They were led by John Edward Taylor and they called the paper the Manchester Guardian. Yes, and so to hear more about that, we're heading now through Windmill Street and onto Deansgate to the John Rylands Library, where we're going to meet Cathy Davies. From the memorial, walk northwest to the end of Windmill Street, past the square of shops and restaurants till you reach Deansgate. Turn right onto Deansgate, cross the road, and then walk northwards for 100 metres or so, passing Hardman Street on your left. The John Rylands Library is the ornate brown sandstone building. You can view the prospectus of the Manchester Guardian which was circulated in April 1921, a month before the newspaper started publishing. So that's one of the earliest um, documents that's in the archive. And the prospectus sort of lays out what the intentions of the newspaper were, who it was aimed at, these sorts of things. Um, It then covers the the 19th century, um, but 
most of the material is around Scott's editorship. Um, one, because he was editor for 57 years, um, but also um, that is uh, there was just a, a more conscious effort to sort of maintain an archive in, during Scott's editorship. It then, the archive in, at the John Rylands Library, the Guardian Archive, covers after Scott's editorship um, into sort of up to sort of the Second World War, um, and then there's not as much material after that. Um, the, the Guardian moved down to London in 1970, it became just The Guardian in 1959. So, a lot of the material from that later period now all belongs in the Guardian News and Media Archive in London. Tell us a bit about why, why is that period that you're looking at, what makes it so interesting? Why does it stand out? So um, Scott's editorship in particular uh, stands out because it, you see a political evolution of the newspaper under C.P. Scott. So it transforms from this more sort of Whiggish um, organ of the early 19th century into, it sort of shifts to the left under C.P. Scott. Um, and you see it become a more, as C.E. Montague, who was a, a leader writer for The Guardian and Scott's son-in-law, he calls it um, a transition into an organ of advanced liberalism under Scott. So you see like this political evolution during his editorship. Um, you see more uh, sort of uh, advocacy for social change and as well as political change, which is part of The Guardian tradition. Um, the emergence of new liberalism at the turn of the 20th century, um, Scott was very much involved in that. So you see the shift to the left in Guardian politics. Um, there's also this uh, establishment of a Guardian ideology under C.P. Scott. So this is sort of a journalistic and editorial ideology you see emerge which is still rooted in sort of its, its foundings, you know, wanting to um, give fair uh, representation to all opponents, wanting to encourage public discussion, wanting to, uh, you know, report the truth. Um, but under Scott, this becomes very much the um, a, a drive, these driving ideals behind the newspaper, and it sees itself as this sort of, um, it has this civic purpose um, so uh, the, these ideals are sort of truth in news. Uh, there's the famous quote that everyone always says, which is comment is free, but facts are sacred, which is what Scott said in his centenary essay of 1921. Um, as well as that, though, uh, th there is still this commitment to public discussion, using newspapers as a forum where ideas can be discussed and, a, you know, the, the best good can emerge. Um, there's also a big commitment to the educational ideal of the press, so seeing the press as an organ through which you educate the population and again they can then discuss ideas and uh, the common good can emerge. Um, that was very much a 19th century liberal ideal. Uh, so Scott's very committed to that, he's one of the only editors committed to that by the sort of um, interwar period. Um, uh, and. Also editorial independence as well, so the way The Guardian works, it was by, especially by the end of Scott's editorship, one of the only independently owned newspapers um, that was left, and after his death, it's transferred to the Scott Trust. Um, so that's why I, the, Scott's editorship in particular is interesting to me from the political standpoint, but also an editorial, uh, journalistic ideology sort of standpoint as well. One of the other things that maybe is interesting about C.P. Scott in that period is that he was also kind of intervening 
in politics, you know, maybe personally, but also kind of on behalf of the paper, wasn't he? He, he kind of took a very definite position and he was kind of advising people or telling people what he thought they should do. Exactly, and you see this especially so from the 1880s. Um, so Scott had already been the editor for, you know, 15 years by this, by the time of the Irish Home Rule Movement, but the Irish Home Rule Movement in the 1880s is when you see his first real assertion as an editor of this is actually the position we're going to take um, and take this more, um, yeah, assertive stance rather than sort of wishy-washing in the middle, which is what The Guardian did a lot of the time. He says, right, now we're supporting Irish Home Rule and we're supporting Gladstone. Um, the Irish Home Rule movement caused a massive split in the Liberal Party in Britain, but Scott stayed with the, the, the Gladstonians. Um, and that's not, it's not just Ireland he does this with. Um, you see it with um, the Boer War. He was very anti-Boer War. This led to a big decrease in Guardian readership and a, a, a loss um, in terms of financial loss. Um, but nevertheless, he stuck with his anti-Boer war line anyway. So that was at the um, sort of from 1898 to 1902. It's here you see him form relationships with people like David Lloyd George, Winston Churchill, who then later on, you know, he's got these connections with and he uses these connections to make assertions in politics later down the line. Um, women's suffrage, another key uh, key cause that Scott advocates for. But again, Scott was a liberal. He wasn't a revolutionary. He didn't agree with women going and blowing up post boxes and things like that. He agreed with constitutional reform, um, using constitutional means to achieve um, progress. Liberalism, or his liberal ideology meant progress, but within moderation. You know, don't get ahead of yourself, step by step. Um, and you see this, so even though he very much uh, promotes these causes that are um, progressive, the means by which he argues that we should do this is very much sort of within moderation, you know. And then the same applies to uh, the Irish question in the interwar years. He doesn't agree with the violence, it's very anti-violence, but he does agree with increasing po political liberty. Continue walking north along Deansgate until you reach John Dalton Street. Turn right here and walk east until the junction with Cross Street. Turn left into Cross Street. On the east side of the street opposite the Royal Exchange building, look for a plaque on the wall next to the entrance to Boots. So we've paused on our way from Deansgate to a plaque sitting on the wall outside Boots on Cross Street. Ellie, what's the significance of this here? Well, this location has mattered for journalism in Manchester since 1841. In 1855, the abolition of stamp duty on newspapers finally made it possible to publish a paper daily and at a reduced cover price of 2p. The Guardian moved to Three Cross Street in 1841 and occupied the building until 1970, along with the Manchester Evening News. And in 1959, the paper changed its name to The Guardian to reflect the growing importance of national and international affairs in the newspaper. But it never lost its original values and its Manchester roots. After years in the London wilderness, The Guardian re-established a North of England news hub in Manchester, which opened in 2015. 
The aim was to significantly extend its coverage of the region and the reach of its newsroom. Helen Pidd has served as North of England editor since spring 2013 and has been a Guardian journalist since 2004 and we've bumped into her just outside Centurion House where the Manchester office is. Thanks for sparing some time Helen, it's lovely to see you. No problem, hello. Helen, can you tell us um, what drew the Guardian back to its original home in a more official sense? Yeah, well, we've—I mean, we've all—we've always maintained some presence in Manchester, and it's kind of waxed and waned over the years to the point when I started in 2013. I was the last woman standing. I was a lone wolf prowling the north of England, which was—I always thought—a pretty sorry state of affairs, considering that we're one of the very few national newspapers that was founded in this great city. And I think what it took was a new editor of the Guardian, who's from the north of England. She's from Ripon in Yorkshire. She's got aunties, her mum, saying, well, why, why is it so London-centric? So one of her first moves when she took over was to, to expand our office um, and, yeah, and, and call it a hub. I mean, it's still very small. There's still only four reporters compared to many hundreds in London. But, you know, it's a start and it's more than most of our rivals. And as a team, as that small team, what sort of uh, stories do you cover in the city? Oh, it's a huge mixture. So if we take what we've been writing about today, we've had somebody in the youth court because there's a teenager who was up in court for defacing the George Floyd mural three times. So we had somebody in youth court writing about kind of polluted rivers during this heat wave, people getting poorly when when they're in rivers. We do investigations. So my colleague um, Josh Holliday is working on something top secret at the moment that I can't tell you. Um, And we do kind of reactive stuff. You know, if something terrible happens, then unfortunately we will be there. Um, but we also do uh, politics, culture, environment, a bit of everything. General reporters, we are. Um, obviously, The Guardian has a very radical history mm-hmm. from the way it started uh, right through to the 1930s and onwards. If you think about its, its place today in the news landscape, how would you describe it? Well, I think we're, well, the main thing that sets us apart is that we are completely editorially independent. We're not owned by a billionaire, and that makes a really big difference. You know, we're owned by a trust, and the trust's only duty is to ensure the long-term future of The Guardian. So we've got no rich bloke telling us what to do. Um, which, and that means that we can, we're free to pursue and call um, to hold power to account, really. And, um, you know, the day that we're talking is a week after this enormous investigation The Guardian's been doing, the Pegasus Project, which has really shocked me. And that's kind of revealed the extent to which our mobile phones are essentially kind of spying devices that we carry in our pockets and that any kind of uh, nefarious uh, person could uh, tap into and listen to our conversations. So, yeah, we're all about holding the powerful to account still 200 years on. Actually, just as a follow-up question, have you had all your phones checked since that investigation? No, we haven't. But I'm going to get a personal phone for the first time in 15 years, to be honest. It really creeped me out, the idea that we're so vulnerable and we're so reliant on our phones. You know, lots of tech investigations I find are a little bit kind of hard for an ordinary person to understand. But this, for all of us, the consequences are massive. And, and if you look at the people they've been targeting, it's, it's, 
it was supposed to be terrorists and the baddies, but actually it's human rights lawyers, it's journalists, and it makes you realise how vulnerable you are and, and how vulnerable your sources are, which is arguably more important. Yes, and with all the incursions at the moment, with the laws being posited around sources and public interest, it is very worrying. Um, we're kind of feature-gazing, which is where I'm going to go next, because um, much has changed since Prince print much has changed since print ruled and the Guardian has also diversified in its ways to reach audiences. I've, I've heard you on the Today in Focus podcast. So can you future gaze with us and tell us what you think the next 10 years will look like for the North of England News Hub? Well, I'm always empire building so I hope that it gets bigger and I think that a big advantage of the pandemic is that um, it's kind of shown that you don't need to be sitting in an office in London in order to produce fantastic journalism. Um, so I hope that our ranks will be bolstered. Um, I think we'll be doing probably more podcasts, maybe more multimedia stuff. Uh, will the papers still exist? Maybe, 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 maybe. Uh, <laughs> I'm not too sure. Um, but I think, you know, essentially what we do will remain the same. As I've already said, holding power to account and trying to find things out that powerful people would rather were hidden. Helen, thanks so much for sparing us a little bit of time. We really appreciate it, and we'll no. see you soon. <laughs> no problems. Now, one of the other significant things about Cross Street is that literally across the road from here is the home of a very new publication, but it's one that also sees itself as part of that same tradition of journalism in Manchester. Ellie, you've been in to have a look. The Mill's founder and editor is Yoshi Herman, who works alongside the website's main reporter, Danny Cole. And... Yoshi's really kindly set aside a few minutes with us. Hi, Yoshi. Hi, great to be with you. Thank you so much for this. Um, we're covering the history of journalism in the city, and we've had the pleasure of speaking before. According to you, the last time we spoke, you said print was dead. <laughs> Tell us about how you're covering news in Manchester today and reaching your audiences. Yeah, so the mill is entirely based in emails. We're a newsletter. So we send out our stories in emails. It doesn't require you to click on any links or go to any sort of ad-filled websites. We're all based in the email itself. So that's the medium we've chosen um, to send out our stories in. And in a sense, I think the medium is also an important part of what we do because we try to create like a relationship with readers. We address them as millers, um, which is our name for our readers. So... Email has been an important thing for us because it's created this sort of intimacy with our audience. Um, I don't think that there's no other good way of doing media. Of course, there are lots of great ways. Um, but that's the one we've chosen. And we send out long reads about Greater Manchester. Sometimes it's Oldham, sometimes it's Salford, sometimes it's Rochdale. So we try and cover the whole sort of uh, city region of 3 million rather than just the, the city of 600,000. Um, when it comes to be print being dead, I mean, we're sitting in our office with uh, print newspapers on the wall from The Independent in the 1990s and the MEN in the 1980s and the Manchester Guardian from 1952 when it was still called uh, the Manchester Guardian. So I think that was um, those decades were sort of the high point of print media and print media made a huge amount of money and it had huge profits and it had huge budgets. The sad thing now is that print has been in decline for 20 years. And when I said print is dead, I, I think what I s sort of meant was 
print is no longer the main way of getting journalism to people. And I think for some of these news organizations, it's become a distraction. It's become a, a thing that a lot of intellectual energy goes into, whereas actually what we should just be focusing on is making the stories better and better, and um, have, we can have a relatively small team of people putting the actual newspaper together. I think that's the New York Times model, and I think that should be adopted more in the UK. So you're thinking less about filling column inches and more about content? Yeah, I, th I think the primary unit we should be thinking about is no longer a page lead. Um, it, it should be the story itself, because online it doesn't really matter how long it is. Whereas I noticed when I was writing a story for The Times a couple of years ago, an enormous amount of energy from the editors who I was working with was going into, is this going to go on page one on the splash, or is it going to go on page three? And if it's going to go on page three, we need to cut it by 400 words. And if it's going to go on the splash, we have to run 600 words on page 13. It just seemed like a lot of very intelligent, very talented editors time and energy was going into questions that come have basically to me seem like production questions which is what print makes you do it makes you spend loads of your time as a journalist thinking about production and i actually think what the, one of the nice things about digital is that it means we can spend less time in production and more time just on the stories themselves so i think that, that's a liberating thing we should kind of take advantage of the shift to newsletter is actually quite a recent phenomena can you tell us how that works as a medium to get your message out yeah, I mean, obviously, email's been a huge part of communications for, you know, 15, 20 years now. I think it's only in the past few years that the journalism industry has figured out that it's a really, really good way of reaching people. I think what happened in the past decade is that because online advertising was the main business model for media, um, you got a huge race to the bottom on quality, where you got loads and loads of websites, even kind of journalistic organizations that had high standards started pumping out loads of low value content and putting loads of ads all over it. And I think for the reader, for the user, that became um, increasingly annoying, increasingly frustrating. If you go on the MEN now, you're going to find some good journalism, but you're also going to find a lot of uh, stuff about what's on TV, and you can find that Rio Ferdinand has tweeted something about Man United needing to assign midfield of what, what you might call very, very low-value stories that take half an hour to write. There's a lot of stories on these kind of websites that are based on one Instagram post. Roy Keane is on a boat with his daughter, and he's shared you know, a, a heartwarming pic, and then they quote the replies. Now, I think people are now sick of that, or certain types of readers... Um, who want good journalism are sick of that. And email newsletters allow you to circumvent that whole world of ad-based websites, clickbait, um, annoying pop-ups, by saying, we are going to give you good quality content in an email. You don't need to leave that the email environment. You don't need to have ads all over it. You can pay a subscription, in the case of the mail, or in the case of lots of paid newsletters, and you can get good quality stuff in your inbox, and there's no faffing around with all this other stuff online. You're not going to be tracked. Your data is not going to be harvested. You're not going to have to read loads of Love Island stories in order to read about the thing you want. Um, and I mean, don't get me wrong, I want to read about Love Island, but some people don't. Uh, <laughs> so I think, I, I think that's why email has become so appealing in the past few years. We're out today walking around the city to, to place the listener in the history of, of journalism in, in Manchester. It's quite extensive. Here we are in the present with you at, at the mill. Would you dare to think about what the mill's place is going to be in Manchester's journalism history? 
I think that's a tough one. I mean, when I started the mill, I thought, how strange that such a great city um, that so many people live in and so many people love and that has such a big reputation around the world and has such a cultural hold over the sort of national imagination has one big newspaper which is half the size it was 20 years ago in terms of journalists. And, and that's it, you know. There are some town newspapers that are a shadow of them former selves in Bolton and Barrie and Oldham and Rochdale. But there's just very, very, very little local media. So I think where it fits in is a part of a renaissance in city journalism, which great cities need to have. I mean, our economy now is overwhelmingly driven by cities, same, same in, in, in the global economy. Cities are incredibly important culturally and economically. So to have a great British city that has sort of one newspaper that's been shrinking and that's only funded by ads and, you know, it just seems a shame. So I think we need a sort of resurgence of city journalism. We need lots of different outlets, not just the mill, but lots of different outlets to come along and fill the different gaps that there are. There are huge gaps around culture. There are few, huge gaps around um, opinion and, 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 and around politics. It's just, I, I think, I see the mill as slotting in and trying to fill uh, some of these gaps for a certain type of reader who maybe uh, doesn't identify um, with the MEN as their main newspaper. Um, you know, these cities used to have you know four or five newspapers. You know, Manchester used to have the turn of the 20th century. I think it had four or five newspapers. So I think I, I don't see I, I don't see the mill as trying to do anything particularly new. I think we're just trying to go back to some old principles that used to exist in journalism of, of great cities and, and maybe has been lost. Yoshi, thank you so much for that. Thanks very much for having me on. Walk northwards on Cross Street, passing the Arndale Centre on your right. Cross Street becomes Corporation Street. So passing the large metro tram stop, you'll see the Printworks building in front of you on Withy Grove. Okay, so uh, having spoken to Yoshi at the mill, we're now on our way to Piccadilly Gardens. It's just a couple of hundred yards from Cross Street on the other side of the Arndale Centre. But before we go there, we're taking another quick detour back in time. So where are we now, Ellie? We're inside the Printworks building in Manchester city centre and it's a part of the city which has been extensively redeveloped since the IRA bombing near the Arndale in 1996. And before it became a cinema and entertainment venue it is now, the building housed one of the largest newspaper printing complexes in the UK, nicknamed the Fleet Street of the North because the northern editions of of a string of national titles, such as the Daily Telegraph, the Sunday Times and the Daily Mirror were all printed here. In its heyday, it was the busiest printing press in Europe. Absolutely. Hundreds of thousands of copies of the Daily Mirror, the Daily Dispatch, the Manchester Evening Chronicle and other titles were printed here every day of the week. So we're, sit we're standing now in front of a plaque, a quote by Lord Kemsley, chairman of Allied Newspapers Limited, June 1937. He says, I do not believe for a moment that decency need be dull. I do not believe for a moment that the reading public want nothing but trash and sensationalism. A newspaper to fulfil its function must inform, entertain and educate. So those are some of the ideals that Yoshi was talking about that have been kind of, well, cast aside really in, in recent years. But anyway, this building was opened originally in the 1870s as the Withy Grove Printing House, operated by the newspaper magnate Edward Hulton. 
Over the years, it changed hands several times, first to allied newspapers, Lord Kelmsley there. Then later, it was bought up by the disgraced late Mirror Group proprietor, Robert Maxwell. He closed the building in 1986, and it lay idle until the redevelopments of the late 90s. Yes, and this building represents one side of the history of newspapers and established print journalism in Manchester. But actually, another part of the story that goes back to the days of the Chartists in the mid-19th century means looking at journalism which is critical of its proprietors and which asks searching questions about wealth, the economy, equality and who owns what. Today, another online publication here in Manchester is The Meteor. Leave the Printworks building and walk back along Corporation Street. Halfway along, on the west side of the street, look out for a red post box. So, Ellie, while we're on the way to Market Street and then on to Piccadilly, um, we should mention this pillar box. We're standing next to a pillar box and there's a little plaque down, down below the, uh, the bit where the collections are and it says this post box remains standing almost undamaged on the 15th of June 1996 when this area was devastated by a bomb. This box was re- removed during the rebuilding of the city centre and was returned here to its original site on November the 22nd 1999. So that's the, the Arndale bombing um, by the IRA and the whole redevelopment of this entire area in the city centre. Now, why have we stopped here? Well, it's because as part of its coverage of the bombing and the police investigation of the Arndale bombing, one MEN journalist, Steve Panter, received documents that said the police knew the identity of the bomber, but essentially that they hadn't acted uh, at that point on the information. Steve Panter was threatened with going to prison for refusing to reveal where he got the information from. Now, protecting confidential sources is a really important ethical principle for all journalists. And so Steve Panter's story is another significant milestone for journalism history in the city. From the post box, continue back along Corporation Street to the junction with Market Street. Turn left here. On the right-hand corner, what's now a mobile phone shop, used to be number 26 Market Street, the original home of the Manchester Guardian. Thanks, Pete, for that. So we're going back in time as we walk up Market Street up to Piccadilly Gardens because we're passing number 26, which was the site of the first Manchester Guardian office. There's no sign of it. Instead, it's now a heavily rebuilt and pedestrianised shopping centre, which is the beating heart of the retail part of Manchester. Let's carry on. Walk east along Market Street, past the Metro tram station, until you arrive at Piccadilly Gardens. So yeah, those chimes that you're hearing in the background were not actually in London. It is, uh, the the chimes of Big Ben, but there's a big sculpture here, um, which we might come to in a minute and talk to you about. But here, Conrad, Conrad Bauer from The Meteor, we're in the middle of this walking tour and we're kind of come up to date really with the Meteor because you're, amongst other things, you're a very new operation, aren't you? Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, well, we've been publishing in Manchester since uh, say October 2016, I think it is. Uh, so I've been around a, f- a, f- a few years, but uh, yeah, we've, uh, we only incorporated as a, as a company uh, a couple of years ago in 2029 as, as a media cooperative. So tell me a bit about the about the, the style of, of coverage, the, the sorts of stories that the meteor goes for. Um, we have a 
a broad umbrella term that sort of covers our range of stories of, of social, economic and environmental justice, stuff that fits under that umbrella. So, yeah, stuff about workers' rights, uh, racism, uh, inequality. Uh, yeah, that's that, that sort of stuff, uh, abuse of power. So although you've only been around for, well, just a bit less than five years, you're very much part of that kind of tradition in Manchester of looking at issues around social justice, aren't you? Yes, we are. And two, two big factors in the formation of the Meteor was uh, the Manchester Mule, which was a previous radical publication. And that's how we got together originally, the Meteor team was doing a, a community journalism course with the Manchester Mule. And, um, and yeah, yeah, we got together from that, the Mule folded, and eventually we went on to form the Meteor. But, um, um, and the other big factor was the Salford Star. Uh, that's uh, a British journalist in Salford. They was involved in that first journalism course that we did. And I was very sorry to see them uh, close down this year, actually, after 15 years of producing some of the best investigative journalism in the Northwest. Again, looking at the development issues in Salford and sometimes in Manchester as well. Uh, so there was two big, big sort of um, yeah, factors in our setting up of the meeting. So there's, there is a big, long tradition of... Um, uh, radical journalism and radical thought and radical politics in Manchester yeah, and we're keen to continue that. Tell us a bit about, you, you mentioned the Meteor team, tell us about the, the journalists, the reporters, the investigators, the researchers that you've got working for you. Uh, at the moment we've got uh, a team of seven production team members. <clears throat> yeah, so it's a multi-stakeholder cooperative. We have production team members and we have community stroke reader members and um, um, yeah, we don't actually have a base, so we, we, we basically work from home. We used to meet a lot in the, in the city centre, at the, the old library up on Oldwood Street, in various venues before the pandemic. Uh, but yeah, we work from home, we collaborate on, on Slack, it's an online sort of communications work sort of channel. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's how we work basically. We don't really have any professionally qualified journalists, I suppose, you say, oh no, we do have one, just got our NCTJ, <laughs> so that's good. So we've, we've taken a, a less obvious route into journalism, I suppose you could say. And the cooperative model, tell me a little bit about that, because it's uh, the, a kind of model that's been adopted by a small number of organisations like yourself. Tell us how that works. We believe that the ownership of the media is one of the big problems with the traditional media landscape. I mean, it's dominated by right-wing billionaires owning the big national papers, and even local papers now are owned by an increasingly smaller number of large corporations, such as Reach PLC, which owns Manchester Evening News, and a number of other uh, papers. And they're all trying to downsize to uh, increase sort of producti productivity due to the scale, scales, the size of them. But you're getting sort of homogenised stories being passed around from yeah, one paper to another. So it's not really a local paper anymore. So yeah, ownership was one of the major reasons. And we thought we set up a cooperative so the readers could become part owners of our media organisation and have a say in how it's run. So on a board of directors, we have uh, half, half of the directors are from the production team and half of the directors are from the community members. So they can have a real say in, in what we report on and we've put out votes before to our membership to decide on what specific themes we will focus on for investigations. 
Finally, I just want to kind of look ahead a little bit. One of the things that you've done very successfully is cooperating with other similar organisations. You know, you, you mentioned homelessness earlier on. You worked on a big national project with the Bureau for Investigative Journalism about homelessness and the number of people dying, um, uh, living, sleeping rough. Is that part of your futures, to start to be collaborating with other organisations like the Meteor? Yes, yes, definitely it is. And uh, I'm glad you brought up the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. That was an excellent um, investigation they did, Dying Homeless, that we took part in. We produced a couple of stories around that that was looking at homeless deaths on the streets in the UK. And so the shocking thing about that was that there was no actual official statistics for homeless deaths on the streets, which you think is crazy, won't you? But that was the case. So that was the first... Uh, time that someone had tried to count them and they did count them and that investigation that we took part in ended up with the Office of National Statistics putting together their own homeless death statistics so that had a real real effect yeah I'm very keen to keep continue uh, uh, collaborations like that we have had another two stories with the Bureau of Investigative Journalism looking into low home care pay in uh, Manchester and Trafford and that's that's uh, combined with data from across the country and uh, we've also had another one looking at um, uh, GPs surgeries in Manchester not offering uh, undocumented immigrants uh, registration. So that allows us to, to, to look at stories with a, with a local focus but also have national impact as well. So very good. Uh, yeah, I'm very sort of pleased with those collaborations we've had with the, the, the Bureau. And we're also a member of the Independent Media Association as well, who are doing very good work uh, trying to promote uh, independent media and trying to find a way to make it sustainable and, uh, and uh, more, more popular. And there's some very good organisations uh, within that group as well. Well, good luck to you. I hope you all go on from, from strength to strength. Conor Barr, thanks very much indeed. You're going to go and look at the Big Ben exhibition. I'm going to walk across the, the Piccadilly Gardens and meet up with Ellie. Thanks very much, yeah. Conrad. Enjoy your walk. It's a lovely day for you. Walk southwards out of Piccadilly Gardens along Portland Street. Turn left into Sackville Street, past the bus station, cross Canal Street, and Sackville Street Gardens is on your left. So while I was speaking to Conrad, um, Ellie was making her way back towards the MMU campus on Oxford Road, but there's a couple of short detours we need to make before then. One takes us back to the middle of last century, the other goes even further back to the middle of the 19th century and to Manchester's economic Big Bang. So we bumped into each other again. Ellie, where are we now? Uh, this is Sackville Street Gardens on the edge of the gay village and we're standing next to the Alan Turing Memorial, a persecuted gay man, a mathematician and a codebreaker who's widely seen as the father of modern computing. He was based at the University of Manchester in the years after his secret Second World War work at Bletchley Park and we've come here to remember not a journalist but someone who's responsible in many ways for the digital world we live in now. As you're listening to this, you might pause to reflect on just how much has changed in technology and society in less than 50 years since Turing died. And you can certainly see more of those changes. They're, they're all around us. Gleaming glass and steels replace much of the red brick, the factories, the mills, warehouses and finance offices, and smog, which would have been familiar to Turing as well as, well as to generations before him. Walk to the end of Sackville Street Gardens onto Whitworth Street. Turn right, and at the traffic lights, turn left onto Princess Street, and follow this to the junction with Charles Street. Turn right here, and cross the bridge over the River Medlock. Across Oxford Road, continue west along Hume Street, 
until he reached the junction with Great Marlborough Street. On the building opposite, you will see an orange plaque marking the site of Little Ireland. We arrive in an area now given over to student housing, offices and a car park with very few signs left of what used to be here, the so-called Little Ireland district described by Friedrich Engels in his extended work of reportage on the human cost of industrial expansion in 1840s Manchester, the condition of the working class in England. The cottages are old, dirty and of the smallest sort. The streets uneven, fallen into ruts and in parts without drains or pavement. Masses of refuse, offal and sickening filth lie among standing pools in all directions. The atmosphere is poisoned by the effluvia from these and laden and darkened by the smoke of a dozen tall factory chimneys. A horde of ragged women and children swarm about here as filthy as the swine that thrive upon the garbage heaps and the puddles. It's truly grim. No wonder cholera was rife and life was short. Engels was working as a cotton mill manager here at the time, as well as writing and corresponding with Karl Marx as they worked on what became the Communist Manifesto. Yeah, and that was Engels in the 1840s, and it doesn't sound like much had changed nearly 100 years on by the time the journalist and author George Orwell visited this area as part of his own groundbreaking reportage for the Road to Wigan Pier. It's worth knowing that in the mid-40s, George Orwell was also a journalist at the Manchester Evening News, which started life in 1868 in a dingy office on Brown Street. It then moved into premises on Cross Street, also home to the Manchester Guardian, and it was subsequently bought by the Scott family, owners of the Guardian. Back here in Little Island, here's an extract from George Orwell's diary. It's the 4th of February, 1938. Frightfully cold. Streets encrusted with mounds of dreadful black stuff, which was really snow, frozen hard and blackened by smoke. Did not want to spend night in streets. Found my way to Poor Quarter, Chester Street, and went to pawn shop and tried to pawn raincoat, but they said they didn't take them any longer. Then it occurred to me my scarf was pawnable and they gave me one and eleven on it. Went to Common Lodging House, of which there were three close together in Chester Street. There aren't any pawn shops in Chester Street now. There's only restaurants and clubs. One shilling and 11 pence, that's actually less than 20p. It wouldn't get you much around here today. Not even a space in that car park over there. A multi-storey student housing block stands where the single men's hostels of Orwell's time might have been. And here, on the corner of Chester Street and Oxford Road, we're on the western edge of the MMU campus. Continue along Great Marlborough Street until you reach the junction with Chester Street. Turn left here and continue until you find yourself at the junction with Oxford Road. To your right along Oxford Road lies the MMU campus. The Arts and Humanities Building, the home of the MMU Multimedia Journalism Department, is on the south side of All Saints Park. As journalism teachers in Manchester, and as former journalists ourselves, we stand on the shoulders of giants, from James Rowe and John Tyus, the two reporters on the scene of the Peterloo Massacre, to the Chartism-era writer and activist Helen McFarlane, through to Orwell and many others. This podcast has taken you through the history of radical journalism in Manchester. And thanks for journeying with us. And as you make your way back to the Manchester Met buildings on the other side of All Saints Park, let's come back to the present day and give Cathy Davies the last word on the role of The Guardian and public service journalism today. 
one of the things with the Guardian is that's interesting I talked about this sort of ideology it has and in reality when you look closely it can't achieve a lot of these things or some of the you know there's occasions where it doesn't quite reach its goals but it's still very much maintained that this is what we're trying to do whereas a lot of the press today doesn't even have that sort of fundamental sort of these moral commitment to being a, a, a public service um, that holds power to account um, and that is kind of romanticized in many ways anyway um, by people like C.P. Scott but at least they had this commitment and really did try to achieve these ideals of truth you know of offering opportunity for discussion um, but particularly truth in news I think we can learn a lot from that today and I hate to say fake news but you know <laughs> um, I think we can all see how um, sort of the press climate over the last well since probably about 2015 has changed um, and a genuine commitment from more publications to uphold the kind of ideals that C.P. Scott did truth in news public discussion um, seeing a newspaper as a, a public service um, that seeks to educate and influence for the, a positive good um, is something we could all, I think, we could be learned uh, and taken forward, definitely.